Hi, and welcome back to this week's episode of the Decarb Connect podcast. And this week, I'm joined by Ben Moons, who's Managing Director of Sustainability Solutions for NG Impact. And we're going to be having a look at something a little bit different. So rather than our usual focus on a particular technology or a particular tool that could affect uh, decarbonisation, we're going to be looking at other kinds of predictors of uh, future success in decarbonisation uh, and Ben's sense of some of those essential shifts that we need to deliver net zero. So Ben, why don't we start with you giving a little bit of a kind of an intro to who you are and how you've arrived at this point in time and the work that you're doing. Sure. Hi, Alex. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so my, my road into decarbonization actually started back when I was a, a consultant, you know, at some of the, the big names, the well-known houses. Uh, so I've, I've been working actually my the past 70 years almost on the big questions of business transformation in companies. Uh, and that, that's, you know, with, with a very different uh, trigger to the transformation. It could be the execution of a strategy, it could be a merger and acquisition, it could actually be performance improvements. Um, so, but the constant was that it was always, um, you know, a, a global challenge of transforming uh, corporates really to its uh, deepest roots. So really looking at all, all sorts of uh, impact you could have on, on processes, organization, governance, and you name it. Uh, and it's actually in that role that I increasingly started to work more and more on energy transition related topics. Um, so primarily, first of all, in, in the power sector, but then uh, expanding towards uh, more industrial sectors. And, you know, with the creation of Avenge uh, Impact back in uh, 2019, I really saw an opportunity that I, that I could uh, make both ends meet and, and actually make it my full-time focus to apply energy transition uh, challenges uh, really on a transformational scale. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's pretty clear that if, if you look at the type of transformations that companies have lived through, uh, that, uh, that this wave of, of sustainability and uh, emission reduction is probably the biggest transformation they'll ever go through, you know, both in terms of uh, impact it has uh, you know in terms of scale as the duration these companies will uh, will have to sustain these efforts um and then i think you know looking at, at personally at my career and where i stood was uh, was an excellent uh, opportunity to uh, to join that uh, race and, and that journey let's start with a sort of big bigger picture question so when you're looking across um the hard to abate sectors which as you know is kind of decarb connects lens is really the manufacturers of those hardest to abate products like cement or steel. When, when you look across those sectors, what are some of the behaviors and the habits that either you think is you know, getting in the way or that's already actually, oh, this company's got it and they're moving successfully to remove barriers to decarbonization. What, what are those behaviors and habits either way that you think are worth noting? Obviously a big question. Uh, I think first you should, probably pin it down on, on maybe defining what, what is success you know? because obviously we're talking about very long horizons uh, to 2050 and beyond but when I when I think about success in these sectors I'd rather pin it down for now on 2030 and see you know in, the, in that time frame you know despite the many constraints that these these sectors are facing on, on still technology side and, and, and you know financial and the like I would like to focus on some behaviors where I see that, uh, you know, despite these constraints, companies accelerate things, move forward more quickly and, and are especially building the foundations to then really accelerate after 2030. Um, you know, I think it's it's often said it's, it's a decade to deliver, it's a climate decade, but 
I feel that's especially true for these hard to debate sectors um, that are, you know, having this immense challenge of, uh, of finding solutions they will be able to scale, while at the same time, uh, I think, safeguarding their, their overall business. Um, and so when I, when I look at especially this coming decade, um, wh where I see that some companies uh, are doing things that are, for me, predictors to success, they're basically boils down to three key things. Um, I, I think, first of all, when, when you just take it from, indeed, the technology standpoint and the question of what are some of the most promising levers for these companies uh, to address, for me, the winners are, are the ones that have a very good understanding of actually how these levers come together and, and uh, actually companies that have then an, an ability to define an integrated strategy against that. Um, I think that I would say is, is predictor number one. Um, the second key thing then is the way actually companies take investment decisions around that. Um, and what uh, we, we often observe is that, um, you know, if you take typical investment policies, they're very much driven by return on investment and payback. Um, and there I see that companies that, that actually are effective in, uh, in, in, in defining that decarbonization strategy are also taking more lens of total cost of ownership and think much more in terms of long-term scenarios uh, related to that. Um, and then I think a third large predictor uh, of success is an probably the way that companies collaborate within the value chain um, and that's related to you know how they build the right effective coalitions to get things done already in this decade or, or again to, to start building these foundations but also the way they actually source capabilities and resources to really upscale that transition to what is needed to uh, you know be on track for a net zero scenario so. and if you think about those three is like you're kind of this three-way tick box this is another kind of big question but what proportion of companies that you come across do you think kind of are starting to use these right kind of behaviors you know is it is it a minority or is it perhaps more than we think you know what what was your imprecise best assumption be <laughs> of uh, how many of these best behaviors we're really seeing in action yeah 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 well, for sure, I, I haven't done you know the the uh, full check, but uh, but I think you know, based on my observations, um, I would say it's rather a minority. It's probably you know three companies out of ten that uh, are, are really found a way to to connect the dots in the right way. Um, and you know ju just uh, starting, for instance, with the the question of how to address uh, different uh, emission reduction levers. Um, no, I think a lot of a lot of companies actually were already, you know, on a certain journey to uh, to to you know have a first achievements uh, with the energy efficiency programs, uh, green electricity sourcing. Obviously, PPA markets took off. So, you know, on-site renewables. So that did initial investments have initial uh, success. But what I see that actually a lot of these companies have approached that um, really as individual technology programs, if you want. They've really been um, mobilizing this against the remit of that individual technology. They did it because it was technically feasible and because it had a certain return, uh, it was driving certain even cost savings. Uh, and in a way, it was not a hard decision uh, to take. Um, what I see in a lot of these companies, despite their initial success, there's that big risk that they'll soon be hitting a wall right? because now they get into the much more much harder questions of, of emission reduction uh, they have to tackle uh, the green thermal question they, they might be exploring 
other um, you know less mature technologies where it's related to to hydrogen to carbon capture etc um i see that suddenly they they realize that the approach they were taking in the past will not bring them much further um and they need to find novel ways to actually you know get the company to commit on uh, some of these new programs uh, embrace some of the higher risks associated with it, uh, the, the 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 less clear uh, financials, uh, and uh, very often as well, you know, the the, the lack of of my mature capability in the market to to deliver that, and that's where I think that that's you know com companies that from the start have been um, investing more in in creating a view on that long term journey or really that end state uh, target that they need to realize and actually reflect not how individual technologies get them there, but truly find ways to combine them in a, an integrated strategy. Um, I think these companies will do two things uh, different. Uh, first of all, they might launch pilots much more sooner to get individual sites further in their journey. Uh, and I think the, the learnings that you have from that will be, you know, will be so critical and um, in, in understanding what it will take to, to upscale that within their footprint. Uh, that's one thing. And secondly, what they also will do better is to find the, the synergies between these technologies, uh, between individual technologies. And that's something that should not be un I, uh, underestimated. If you, I, if you actually look today, um, take, for instance, the green thermal question. Um, obviously, you see a lot of companies looking at, at the question of electrification. There's a there's a possibility to, to also look at uh, the use of CCUS uh, combined with combustion technologies. There's uh, even on, on you know, the, the like green thermal itself, you have uh, multiple new commodities you could consider, hydrogen, synthetic fuels, uh, biofuels, you name it. So there are in a way a lot of, um, a lot of dependencies uh, and, and, and possibilities in between these technologies to, to create um, actually a, a, a holistic system that is actually uh, optimized. Eh? Uh, we see, for instance, that, that if we tackle green thermal questions, very often the solution is a mix of, uh, for instance, a heat recovery uh, system you know, from an energy efficiency standpoint, uh, an, an industrial heat pump to, to realize the temperature lift. You could add an e-boiler to basically sort of peaking loads, uh, on, we know with an electrification scheme, and then still maybe in combination with the base load um, uh, combustion technology, for instance, on, on, on biomethane. But what we start to see is that these future, um, you know, um, zero carbon on-site systems will, will be, uh, be, be in, in a large extent hybrid systems. It will not just be a single technology. No, it will always be a combination of those and in a way that you really can capture uh, synergies uh, between them. Um, I think for that to do well, um, I think these companies need to, you know, em embrace that question much more from a dynamic system perspective. They really need to understand, uh, you know, what, what in the future in my production scheme will be base versus peak loads. They need to size against that. They need to find, you know, the, the, they need to see how, for instance, a baseload technology like a, a biomethane CHP, uh, you know, could uh, could um, could be combined with, for instance, an electric border to make uh, use of the um, of the, uh, for instance, the uh, favorable economics you have in in, uh, in the electricity markets at times, uh, or even the 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 availability of on-site renewable electricity they could tap into, you know, at at very low cost. So that type that type of system thinking. 
um, and the ability to really strategize uh, against that, that will be become very significant uh, for, for these companies to get right. Um, and that's not easy because that requires really truly a blend of, of, of strategy skills, of long-term planning and, uh, and of really uh, uh, like deep engineering in a way. Um, I'm interested in like, to what extent do you think that the urge or the kind of impulse to focus on technology is almost, do, do you see that as it sometimes being part of the issue? Because, you know, some in some sectors that are starting to see kind of real changes in the opportunity to decarbonize, it's, it's not by tech first, it's by sort of almost reimagining how the, the core business may even work. And that's obviously significantly harder in yeah. these old traditional industries. But, you know, do you, do you have a view on that? Or do you think actually, no, it's right. They just need to focus on the technological application to an existing process that can get them to net zero. What, what's your view on that? Well, you know, I always say that, that companies of that sort ideally have some sort of a, a dual strategy. Uh, I, I think, you know, on the one hand, like you say, they need to think about that fundamental R&D and that will introduce new process technologies. And I see a lot of that, uh, e-crackers, uh, electrolyzers of steel. I mean, there's the, a lot of, lot of long-term bets that these companies are anyway uh, making and that will, you know, lead to a very fundamental shift in how they produce things. Um, but I think that can never be an excuse not to make progress in the interim. Um, and that, that's where, you know, as well with that more holistic integrated system thinking on the decarbonization levers, I think there are today a lot of opportunities to get to, you know, what I call smart transition schemes. It's, uh, it's basically, you know, strategies where you can more gradually start to shift your uh, production towards uh, a low carbon form of, uh, you know, of, of, of manufacturing. And, and uh, let, let me give you one uh, example to make it tangible. Uh, for instance, in the steel sector, uh, we, uh, we probably all know that uh, the direct reduced iron, so DRI, is, uh, is, is part of the, uh, of the future solution set, uh, you know, where basically hydrogen will be used to do, um, uh, to, to used as a reduction agent. Um, now, actually, you know, when, when you think about it, there's, um, there's perhaps a, a smarter way to think about DRI. Um, you know, DRI works perfectly on the basis of uh, natural gas. I mean, that's a, a process they have known for, uh, for decades. So uh, in that sense, you, you can uh, you know, uh, apply it on, on existing sites. And our thinking is like, instead of feeding that with um, the DRI process with hydrogen, you, uh, you feed it with synthetic methane. Um, but then what you do is actually the, the synthetic methane, where does it come from? You actually create some sort of a, a, a carbon looping on the site where you capture the, the carbon coming from, you know, the DRI process on natural gas. Um, and you capture it and you blend it with, indeed, uh, green hydrogen that you produce on the base of renewables. Um, and then you basically uh, buffer that synthetic methane. Uh, you can store it on site. Um, and so you create a system where, you know, it's almost fully dispatchable. You can decide when you want to use your synthetic green methane in your production process. Um, and so what's the big benefit of that is that you, like, first of all, you, um, there's no need to have like a, like a big bang a switchover of assets. You don't need to change your, even your existing production methods. You can just uh, rely on your existing DRI process. Um, and it also allows you, you know, if you have certain customers that really want to move forward, that have a willingness to pay, for instance, for, uh, for a premium product, 
you can start to make uh, literally uh, green steel batches uh, specific on request. Um, and you know that's just one solution of where you can pin down um, you know you, um, on the basis of, of an existing well-known carrier being meeting, you can actually create already uh, perfectly a low carbon ecosystem around it, more dispatchable, more flexible. And uh, it might be okay in that sense, a little bit more expensive than the end stage solution you want to go through. But at least it allows that you, you, um, you, you basically make that transition much easier and smoother and you don't need to go all in from uh, the very start. And I think you know when, when um, you would consider other sectors, I think you can get to similar type of, uh, of setups and conclusions. Um, and you know I think that idea of, uh, of, of creating a, a smoother transition uh, is, is something that should be an important design a criterion when you you start to reflect on on your future uh, low carbon processes. Um, okay, so that that's kind of building out on that first point you you made, which was about how do you get from uh, how do you develop an ability as an organisation to sort of look at this whole issue of decarbonisation in an integrated way rather than mini project, mini project, mini project, which we all hear a lot about at the moment. The second point you made is also an interesting one to me, which is this um, movement towards total cost of ownership. Now, I wonder, could you tell us a bit more about that? What, what does that mean? And can you give an example, just again, to bring it to life a little? What, do you, what are you envisaging when you say that? Sure. So uh, for us, when again, when, when you then start to reflect more on, um, you know, what does it what does it take a company to get to that end state ambition? Uh, you're, you're immediately thinking in, in longer term scenarios. Uh, it's a really... Uh, it's a sequence of adoption of new technologies that eventually will, will get you to your, your emission reduction target. And you know, once you start mapping that scenario, uh, what we do is we will look at the, the you know, all related, uh, obviously, CAPEX uh, in, in new equipment. We look at the OPEX of that new equipment. We also look at the OPEX of uh, the, the potential new commodities you need to source. Uh, it could be that you, you're basically sourcing green hydrogen, that you're, you're sourcing biomethane, uh, you have your PPAs in, in, in place, et cetera. So we bring that all together to, to show what is the, the total cost of ownership of a given scenario. Um, and then obviously the different scenarios, you know, that could be, for instance, competing technology options you have. Uh, you know, you might think of, for instance, uh, a biomethane-based pathway versus a, maybe a biomass one versus an electrification scenario, which have distinctly different uh, financial um, uh, behaviors. Um, but what we do is that we, we, we express that what's really that total cost of ownership over the total horizon to get to your end state. Um, and when we do that, there's two important uh, um, reflections we make. First of all, we'll contrast that with what we call the, the business as usual scenario. It's, it's basically showing you know, how in your current state will uh, certain costs inflate. And there's, uh, there's obviously commodity prices that we already see, uh, you know, that are, that are uh, on the rise. There's uh, the impact of, uh, of, of allowances, CO2 prices, carbon taxes, uh, and the like. And there's not to forget also stranded asset risks, uh, which uh, can also lead to, to huge uh, write-offs uh, and, and, and costs. And often many of these things are not well captured uh, when you when you when you look at, at at a normal return on investment calculation, and the fact that we you know put a, a total cost of ownership on that business business as usual scenario, that shows you like what is my true incremental cost 
of my you know least cost decarbonization pathway and in our experience when we are advising some of these corporates um we actually actually see that in many cases the total cost of ownership of your your you know your best uh, low carbon scenario is lower than the business as usual um and so the whole notion of of investment decision making then takes a whole different spin um you uh it's much easier to uh, to to basically align different stakeholders around these scenarios to get that commitment uh, to really understand how as an again an integrated solution that's uh, that's providing the right uh, economics and it's um, yeah in a, in a way also uh, very revealing because what we typically see is that the capex portion and the total cost of ownership is uh, is very often less than 10% um, and what is truly driving that total cost of ownership, it's still your you know, future sourcing of commodities, whether it's renewable electricity, again, biomethane, hydrogen, uh, and the like. That's what's really driving your total cost of ownership. And so it's funny that actually, when you think about emission reduction, that most companies look at it as a technology investment question. Well, in the end, it's, it's, definitely, it's definitely that, but it's much more and, and even more, and more importantly, uh, also a future sourcing question that you need to get right. And that changes the whole perspective as well on, uh, on the risks of these scenarios. Right? Because if you, uh, if you consider, for instance, um, you know, an electrification scenario where at the same time you can lock in your uh, electricity price for 15 years or 20 years with the PPA, it obviously has much lower risk than if you, if you have a, a you know, competing scenario where you want to use a biomethane CHP uh, on your site for which the actually the, the the sourcing dynamics of biomethane are today very uh, very unclear yet so that understanding of risk in these scenarios um is uh, is, is is really facilitated by that total cost uh, of ownership thinking um and it, it gives you a better sense of uh, of of you know the, what what trade-offs you can make not just on the base of cost but also on the base of risk yeah, I think one, one of the kind of interesting things in the background of that though as well, isn't it, is how do companies, particularly those of massive cross-border international scale, how do they get the right heads in the room on a regular enough basis to really assess these things? You need those different views, the finance specialists, the yeah. energy procurement specialists, as well as you know, partners and, and everyone else in the room as well. But I wonder how many um, industrials are really doing that yet the whole conversational tone shifts when they're involved no it's critical it, it, it goes together with, with what i said on the integrated strategies and the uh it's it's absolutely as you say actually the organization is a, is a key reason why a lot of the programs in the past were run as uh, you know isolated uh initiatives um and were not looked at uh you know uh, holistically and um what we believe is that you know once once you make that shift towards more an integrated perspective and indeed you assemble that cross-functional team, um, you will first of all align these people on on a, a better joint understanding of uh, the possibilities of technologies, you know how they stack up, uh, uh, how far they bring you on on your emission reduction journey. But then more critically is, is you'll start to see where you run into the barriers of adoption. And, and like I said uh, today, uh, for instance, on, on the finance function, you have you have actually investment policies that are not set up to support uh, an emission reduction journey. Um, the, these policies are still from a standpoint where you know a, a plant needs to compete 
I, uh, on plant level, uh, investments in, uh, in in green technologies compete with uh, with any other sort of uh, of production related investments, and for sure, uh, you know, payback often is of that nature that it doesn't make the cut. Uh, so you really have to lift it out of a lot of established practices and processes and indeed um, organize it much more from a, a cross-functional program perspective um, and challenge challenge really a lot of the, the established thinking uh, in the process where it's you know related to uh, the way you commit investments, uh, the way you do procurement even, uh, the way that operations looks at you know business continuity and and uh, and, and looks at, uh, at at quality and risk uh, in all areas and there's no exception uh, you know practices will have to be uh, in, in a way be be re revised um, and I think you know establishing a cross-functional team going quickly for a pilot site where you create that integrated perspective again is critical to establish the learnings to then scale up uh, the program accordingly. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's also, you know, making sure that you combine local stakeholders with central stakeholders more on corporate level, that, that you also look at this program, not just as something that should be right for your first site, but where you also, uh, again, create foundations to drive uh, significant program synergies. Um, you know, you, uh, what we, right, for instance, see is that, uh, again, thinking about the overall transition these companies need to go through and, and the related you know, project life cycle of doing engineering design, working with OEMs to source these technologies, doing the implementation. In each of these steps, there's a, there's a lot of opportunities to drive uh, synergies across sites with economies of scale, with learnings that you, you, you basically transfer from one site to the other. And, you know, that's also something I would like to say is like companies need to uh, focus a lot more on where the synergies to realize in in that overall transition rather than necessarily getting to the cheapest solution for a single site and could even could even be of that nature that it uh, it really drives your uh, your technology choices and that you may be passed on an opportunity locally to do uh, for instance shallow geothermal uh, but that you decide that you're just going to stick to uh, to a, a bit of a solution template that you established on the base of a pilot site and that revealed that you know that technology is working is viable fits uh, in, in the operations and is ready to to be scaled up in a modular way across uh, across your footprint you've articulated really clearly some of the the other shifts in behavior that's needed but how is this going to affect collaboration and partnerships i think coming back to the, the the point of you know your total costs and and the risk perspective for sure it helps to be open to, to coalition building. I think uh, companies need to explore uh, where in the value are their opportunities to, to, to collaborate so that you, you know, can either pull volumes, you can pull risks uh, related to these new technologies and the like, so that in the end, you know, the, you're, you're lowering that threshold to, uh, to start uh, innovating and, and adopt new technologies. And there's sure also opportunities to share infrastructure, to mutualize costs. There's um, there's also looking at alternative schemes uh, where maybe instead of, for instance, looking at on-site green hydrogen electroly electrolyzers, you, you you work with other partners to to rather look at uh, setting up an import supply chain of green hydrogen. So, I think it's um, it, it's critical that that companies really go out and find uh, you know proper partners um, that can mean something very tangible to, uh, to the business case or, or to uh, indeed, again, reducing the risk of, of the transition. And 
that also means you know, going downstream, uh, working more with your customers. I think today there's not enough uh, happening. Okay, there's there's a lot going on um, behind the doors, but but I I feel that companies still starting to get a grip on their own agenda on emission reduction and uh, do not feel ready yet to engage with their customers. Um, but I think there's no, a very important uh, key there to um, to be able to to, to move faster uh, and not just from a standpoint of finding a green premium because maybe that potential is low but it, it's just you know establishing the the, the confidence that uh, that your clients are willing you to move and that you can put a time frame to that that you can put a joint ambition against that trusts uh, can start to build to perhaps you know down the road to make uh, joint investments where needed and uh, i think you, you've seen some examples uh, automotive looking at green steel but it's all still pretty limited uh, today i would say uh, and i think uh, especially the heavy industry sector needs we can probably can do more uh, in terms of uh, building these coalitions the second key thing around building collaborations and partnerships is also reflecting on how eventually you will be able to mobilize resources at sufficiently large scale to achieve the transition on time. Um, and that's not just financial resources. Uh, obviously, the, the funding needs will be immense uh, for these companies to, to uh, realize their full transition. Uh, but it's not just about the money. I think it's also about where will you find the capabilities uh, and where will you find the partners that, again, can de-risk that journey for you. And in that sense, I think there's a very important future for players that basically will facilitate that transition on behalf of customers with with things like utilities as a service where in essence you know you say to a company don't worry about your your thermal agenda we we can provide heat as a service we will do that at a predictable cost uh we will do that you know uh, even absorbing all the operational risks uh, related to these new technologies and we will also do that in a way that that basically the investment is uh, is borne by that third party and on that front you know i've seen actually today very little happening and i think there there are a lot of constraints in the way to uh, fully embrace uh, such a such a model uh, it's often you know, cultural, it's it's the fact that in the past energy sourcing has been dealt with really as a as a commodity type of purchase. So very transactional arm's length uh, relationships, uh, very local as well. And and that really needs to take a fundamental shift. You know, we need to bring that much more to a, a corporate and strategic level. Uh, I really start to explore meaningful partnerships with, for instance, uh, energy uh, providers um, and the like. To uh, yeah, to basically take a fundamental strategic sourcing decision and and perhaps decide that it's you know it's not part of your core competencies to uh, start building that clean energy infrastructure. So for companies then who who need to sort of make some fairly urgent first steps, I mean one of the things we talk about a lot on this podcast is that ten well less than ten years, eight years really to twenty thirty and really not a long time and sleep in the 2050 deadline when you look at it through the lens of heavy industry and their investment cycles what if we look at these as urgent first steps what what would you say would be for most companies the kind of the urgent first steps that you'd be recommending they look at or consider right now no um well i think that there are a couple of ways that that companies can adapt their their way of working um I think, first of all, it's obviously an important leadership question. Um, and 
Um, actually, we've done a fairly recent a, a significant uh, survey among, uh, among uh, the C-suite uh, of uh, companies of 1 billion in revenue and, and, and bigger um, across multiple sectors to understand where do they stand in their emission reduction journey um, and related you know, to, uh, to indeed how, how they organize from a leadership perspective, from governance perspective, strategy, et cetera, et cetera. And what, what was very striking is that, um, and it might sound silly and, and uh, very evident, but it's, uh, it's in companies that really on the sea level created uh, either a, a clear chief sustainability officer role or uh, that tasked not the CEO, but for instance, the COO uh, with the emission reduction agenda and the broader sustainability agenda. It was those companies that uh, basically were showing most success. Um, and that's simply because the, um, um, yeah, these companies were, were effective in setting an agenda and uh, getting mandated by the CEO to, uh, to, to, to basically um, create impact throughout uh, the company, uh, to challenge paradigms, uh, well-established paradigms, to uh, basically also um, um, establish that vision throughout the company to, to drive that almost activism, if you want, drive that engagement uh, within the company. Um, and so I would say like, it's, it's, it really all starts with the leadership uh, and you know, embracing the ambiguity uh, of, uh, of, of, of venturing on, on that uh, emission reduction journey. Um, the second key thing I see is, is really more related to, to governance. Um, and we touched upon it. I think it's critical to establish these uh, cross-functional uh, committees um, so that you, right, you can really break down uh, the individual stakeholder silos that you you can also partly um, mitigate what we see in a lot of companies, uh, which is a very decentral way of decision making. Uh, so no power being with sites, uh, even competition between sites that do not necessarily help to, uh, to ensure that a whole footprint is moving forward. So I think it's, it's, it's critical that companies um, are, are sensitive to, to where they have these barriers and, and the way that they you know, take decisions and the way that they bring stakeholders together and uh, really uh, establish a very effective program infrastructure around their uh, emission reduction agenda. And that's really reverberate in, in the whole uh, organization. And again, uh, get that mandate from uh, the CEO and the board to, uh, to drive results. Um, so that that's for governance and i think a last last important uh, piece is, as well as a uh, culture yeah, but that I, I think that goes along with the engagement uh, but it's striking to see you know in in how many companies i see that basically the their cultural traits that that really made them so successful today start to stand in, in their way um and and i take for instance uh i'm not gonna name uh, specific companies but Take for instance in, in the chemical sector, where where obviously you're you're in a an environment uh, that's very much driven by by excellence, by safety, by um, uh, by operational excellence, safety. Um, there there you see that that actually, but that inward focus that they typically have is uh, is not helping to embrace these new type of partnerships. Uh, and you know that has direct manifestation and the degree that they, for instance, uh, allow collaboration with uh, with new ventures, the way that they think about uh, sourcing you know future capabilities, allowing third parties on their side to uh, to implement uh, new technologies. That's 
you know, that's a that's a, a very um, real barrier and constraint that these companies face, and that's entirely driven by by their culture. Um, uh, for instance, I also take the way they do innovation. Uh, it will typically go through a lengthy uh, R and D um, uh, vetting process, and and you know by a central innovation team before technology will even hit uh, a certain site. So all of that is is really leading to long adaptation cycles of new technologies and it's simply uh, too slow for the speed that we need to achieve uh, to hit our targets okay well let's let's kind of draw this to a close i mean you started this by outlining those kind of three main areas that you think companies need to focus on so that's the ability to see uh, an integrated solution rather than in you know individual tools that you're going to apply that ability to view investment from a total cost of ownership perspective and then of course uh, value chain collaboration if you are only going to focus on one what's the most important of those right now do you think if you if you were really going to say okay if three is too many here's the one you've got to look at with serious intent what what would you say is the strongest lever i would probably look at the um at the way that companies take these investment decisions the funding essentially is available we're just missing that ability to uh, to connect the dots and um, and to um, yeah to really get out of of the the existing capital allocation uh, methods. I think there really li lies uh, today a very important key to to accelerating the efforts. And once you start doing that, I, I think much of the other things we we discussed about will follow uh, because then you start to think about integrated scenarios. You you start to Look at uh, you know how other companies could share some of that capex burden that you're facing, and you really start to get a much more long-term uh, understanding of where, as a company, you you will be uh, hitting your 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 limits, both in terms of resources and capabilities. So, you know that that scenario thinking with total cost of ownership for me is really a a key one to uh, unlock, uh, I think, further efforts and, and, and you know, get more done before the end of this decade. Well, Ben, thank you. Thank you again for coming and talking to us. And um, hopefully we'll catch up again in the future and hear more about kind of big projects, big system changes coming online. But thank you for today. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you.